Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, it's time to dig out that old crystalline silicon ball from the back of the closet for my 2019 predictions. Now, with the solar industry chaos of 2018 behind us, boy, it was a crazy year. Now, many of us are looking forward to more predictable growth in 2019. That is, at least the ITC goes to zero for residential solar and 10% for commercial on 123121. So we've got three more years. Then again, you think that things are going smoothly, but you got to remember, we're on the solar coaster. So it's unwise to be complacent about any rosy solar future, or on the economy for that matter. The thing about the solar industry is things just hit us from left field. We think things are going smoothly, and then tariffs hit, or there's a supply shortage or something like that, and it really slows the industry down. It's just not predictable. And you know, it's partly a factor of an incumbent new industry like solar and, and battery storage. It's also partly a factor of the fact that there are incentives that are helping the industry grow. And when those incentives kind of go away or they're not predictable, then the growth of the industry is not predictable. Now, the bigger issue, I think, and this hit us hard in 2007, is our economy is kind of in an unstable state. Now, hopefully, both Republicans and Democrats will collaborate slightly more on energy policy in Washington, D.C. next year. Now, after all, energy is infrastructure, and they're talking about some infrastructure bills. So I hope they put some good infrastructure bills that are good for solar and storage in place. And then we have more stability in the coming years. I also hope that those infrastructure efforts on behalf of energy aren't solely focused on utility-scale solar. I want to make sure that those benefits are spread around to distributed generation and behind-the-meter solar. Now, just kind of looking back over 2018, I was pretty good with my predictions, except for one that I was just flat out wrong about. I had expected the White House to convert completely to coal power in 2018. Clean, cheap, beautiful coal. But for whatever reason, they didn't make that transition. They're still probably running the White House on electricity that they get from the local utility, and it's powered by natural gas, and maybe also solar and wind. Got a lot of wind sources out there. All right. Uh, in any case, here are my 10 predictions for 2019. Number one, inflation will hit the residential solar installation industry pretty hard. Now, we talk a lot about inflation in, in the overall economy, but it's starting to hit the solar industry, and not exactly for the reasons that you'd expect. Now, fundamentally, the Federal Reserve is trying to keep a lid on our overall inflation, but you know the way they do that is they raise interest rates. But the, the lid is blown off when it comes to the specific costs that the solar industry experiences. So this isn't really as much of a, a Federal Reserve or a national economy issue. It really has to do with the ingredients, the, the factors of production that go into solar installations. With the fortunate exception of lower solar panel costs, Costs for virtually every other component that goes into commercial or residential or even utility-scale installation have gone up. So it's nice that solar panel prices have come down, but everything else has gone up. Now, tariffs are increasing the prices of inverters. Um, who knows whether it's going to be 10% or 25%, but you know, those have been announced. So the inverter companies have already raised prices. All the electronics, the monitoring, and things like that that have also gone up. And the mounting systems have gone up. And why did the mounting systems go up? Because there's tariffs on imported aluminum and steel. And so the domestic manufacturers are able to charge more money. So you either pay a big tariff on things that are imported, mounting components that are imported, or you buy more expensive commodity steel and aluminum from U.S. suppliers. And also, just general inflationary factors are increasing labor costs. It's great that the people that do installations, you know, my employees, other Contractors' employees are making more money on an hourly basis. I mean, cost of living has gone up, and Silicon Valley is an expensive place to live, but it also has increased 
the cost of solar installations. Well, you know, on the one hand, you think, oh, as technology improves, productivity will go up. But doing solar installations is not something that can be completely automated. The equipment still has to be integrated. There's a lot of things that go into it. And there's just a ton of direct and indirect labor. And those labor costs have all gone up. Now, in addition, there's new code requirements like rapid shutdown. This hit in 2017, but it's ubiquitous now. Battery safety measures. There's something called Rule 21 for smart inverters. These all add to the complexity and the costs of most residential and commercial installations. Now, nevertheless, you kind of look at the net economics, since electric rates also continue to go up with local inflation. And you know, I kind of looked around. And the average rate of electricity around the country is pretty much dependent on the cost of living in that location. So just looking at Silicon Valley under a microscope, as labor costs go up, as cost of living goes up, electric prices go up too. So it's kind of netting out. We're not seeing paybacks getting down around the four-year range for residential. They're still in the six or seven-year range, but that's still pretty good. And also, you got to remember when you put in a system and you start out with a six or seven-year payback, since that's kind of a guaranteed output, as inflation pushes electric electricity costs up, your savings get better and better. Okay, so that's prediction number one. Prediction number two. Good software and communications are the price of admission for future solar and battery systems. Now, Mark Andreessen, he's the founder of Netscape, wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal in 2011. His article was entitled, Why Software is Eating the World. And he was focusing on the computer industry. And basically, the concept was the hardware is getting commoditized. The value is in the software. So the, so the hardware is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and the software has still got a lot of value with it. So he wrote that article in 2011, just as smart inverters were being conceived and battery systems were viable only in the off-grid world. I, I, I remember back in 2001 doing networking of PV monitoring systems, and it was just really, really awkward, difficult to do. The software, you kind of write software, but you had to get special hardware. It didn't exist. So it's interesting how that's really all evolved. But with the requirements for smart inverters, it's really important to have good software. And I just can't exaggerate that too much. If your inverter doesn't have software that's easy to configure, easy for an installer to use, easy for you as a user, commercial, residential, to access, and easy for the manufacturers to administer, your system's not going to be working. Now, I don't completely believe that software will eat a solar and battery storage system anytime soon. I mean, after all, silicon and lithium are not among the tastiest of elements. But it's clear to me that functional and reliable customer software Server-side software, this is something that the manufacturers use, and administrative software and firmware is absolutely required for effective grid integration and customer service. Now, basically, in a nutshell, software is a core competency for every inverter and storage system, especially as this thing called Rule 21 and smart inverters become important, because the manufacturer and the utility are going to want to have a little bit of control over that. And if there's not good, established, secure software, that hardware's not going to work. Okay, prediction number three. Supply chain issues with battery storage systems will continue to plague customers and contractors. Now, it's not like the solar panel industry, where you have inverters, and the inverters can work with pretty much any solar panels, and the solar panels can work with pretty much any inverters. Right now, we're still at the early stage of battery storage systems, and especially those integrated with solar. And they don't really talk well together, at least until we really have standardization. It's going to help. Tesla and Enphase were very wise to integrate their batteries and inverters in a single enclosure. They were kind of the first. Then LG Chem and LG Electronics are coming out with a complete packaged offering from LG. Meanwhile, my favorite, market leader SolarEdge, is expected to add batteries to their product portfolio now that that they have acquired Korean company Cocaine. So basically, we're not at the situation yet where there's 
10 different battery companies and 10 different inverter companies, and they're all interchangeable. The way that this is working right now is the inverter company selects one or two battery companies or battery suppliers, and they, they kind of bring that under their own umbrella, and then everything works. Once again, it's, this is really communication. These things aren't plug and play. Okay, prediction number four. According to Paul Samuelson, the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions. Yeah, so the stock market's kind of maybe on the pessimistic side, but you know the way the stock market's gyrating right now, the expectation's high that the next recession's on the horizon. And when it hits, and we've been through this before, 2007, when a recession hits, customers, commercial and residential, they don't have a lot of cash, or they're holding on to their cash. So financing will become even more critical, as it did in 2007 and 2008. I just remember that recession in the residential solar industry. Things almost ground to a halt. As real estate values collapsed, customers didn't have home equity to purchase a system, and the contractors that offered finance solar installations, both for residential and commercial systems, they really thrive compared to the cash-only providers. Solar City took off. Sungevity was doing well. Sunrun really did well, and they're continuing to do well. And, and there were third-party providers, and Sunrun was one of them at the time, that was basically providing financing to all the contractors. And, and we happily used their financing, and the customers were happy. Now, in a nutshell, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. When customers don't have any cash, the contractors that have access to financing are really going to do well. Okay, prediction number five. U.S. solar manufacturing will continue to decline on a worldwide percentage basis in spite of these illusory tariff benefits. Now, the government put tariffs in place on solar cells, heck, going back six or seven years, and on solar cells and modules, and this was ostensibly to help U.S. manufacturers. But since virtually every component that goes into a solar power system, that goes into a solar module, in fact, has to be imported, everything from the cells to the junction boxes, yeah, including the back sheets, EVA, some of the wire. You can get some domestic suppliers, but they're really not, sometimes they're not as uh, cost-effective. So what happens is these tariffs on all the components, all the ingredients, put the U.S. manufacturers at an even greater disadvantage. Why? Because the overseas manufacturers can buy everything, put the solar module together. They don't pay a tariff on anything. Yeah, they pay a tariff on the module. But the U.S. manufacturers that are really trying to do the right thing and do the manufacturing here in the U.S., almost every single thing they buy is more expensive because of tariffs on imports or just because domestic products are more expensive. So what's happening is the overseas manufacturers are continuing to ramp up their volumes and reduce their costs, and, and the U.S. manufacturers are struggling to get to economies of scale. So I, I really, my heart goes out, kudos to all those intrepid U.S. module manufacturers. You know, companies like Oxen, like Seraphim, like Mission Solar, and SunPower bought a plant in, in Oregon. They're really trying to succeed in the face of what really consider to be hostile economic policies, government economic policies for the businesses. Those policies should be adjusted so that they make solar manufacturing more cost-effective. All right, prediction number six. Public utility commissions will force incumbent utilities to utilize distributed solar and storage in addition to their own new grid infrastructure to improve the grid reliability. Now, whether we call it grid edge technology, distributed energy resources, DER, there's another TLA, or behind the meter solar and storage, behind the meter, BTM, deployments of these systems without significant utility investments are good for ratepayers. Why? Customers, commercial customers, residential customers are putting these generating and storage assets in place. And utilities don't have to do it. Now, ironically, utilities do it. The dilemma, as always, will be fairly compensating customers for the use of their own assets. If your business puts solar on the roof 
you get benefits from that. You don't want the utility to actually harm your economic prospects. And why do they do that? Well, the reason why the utilities are kind of pushing back on this you got to remember, this is a utility business model. Investor-owned utilities are continuing to lobby really hard to install their own generation and storage assets. And then what they do is they rate-base these assets. They basically say, oh, we just got another $10 billion worth of assets. We want a 10% rate of return on that, and we're going to raise rates to pay for that. So the customers basically pay for that. Now, also, when you think about these new behind-the-meter distributed energy resource assets, it's not just solar panels and batteries. But it's also smart inverters and other loads that can be controlled. All right, prediction number seven, cost-effective and reliable. (laughs) Important two factors. Battery storage systems are still at the bleeding edge stage. In my view, and we've got a lot of experience with battery storage systems, and they work, they work really well. But it's still going to be a few more years before batteries are attached to 50% of the systems, including retrofits and upgrades. Almost no choices right now for retrofitting or upgrading an existing system. And the new systems are still on the pricey side, even with the California rebate. Now, the two big benefits of combined solar and storage systems, benefit number one, backup power when the grid goes down, and it's happening more and more frequently, and two, energy cost savings are only partially addressed by the first-generation systems currently on the market. The customer backup power needs are going to be met most effectively. These systems are going to be improved when solar and storage systems can integrate with what's standard in a building. For example, in a residential home, you have a standard 200-amp service panel. The current systems out there don't easily integrate that, and and there's solutions to that coming up in 2019, so I'm looking forward to that. Now, on the economic front, the battery systems provide more compelling customer benefits as peak electric rates move into the evening, and they get more and more expensive. And new per kilowatt hour fees are added to electric bills. So utilities are saying, hey, we got this problem. We're going to charge customers, you know, another point, you know, penny a kilowatt hour. We have this uh, these bonds to pay for. We're going to charge customers more money. Well, if every, any charge is based on a per kilowatt hour fee and you have solar and you're not using as many kilowatt hours, they benefit. Now, unfortunately... Even though the the battery systems are going to get better and utility rates are continuing to go up, I just look at these hostile, hostile with a capital H, interconnection and incentive policies for battery storage systems. And so the utilities are basically saying, hey, we really would rather put this stuff in ourselves. Let's make it uneconomical for customers to do it. Let's add all these fees. Let's add all this complexity. Let's make it take 12 months for you to connect a battery system or two years to do it on a commercial basis. And that's kind of what's happening out there in, in reality, and it's really slowing the market down. Okay. Prediction number eight, virtual power plants. Now, a VPP is my favorite new TLA, or three-letter acronym. Now, a virtual power plant is, is basically a system where you have a distributed network of solar batteries and controllable loads. So, although solar generates power and a battery can be set to discharge power, from a customer's perspective, if you are able to shed loads, for example... Turn the EV charger off for an hour. Turn the HVAC system to a setting where it's using less power. Really hot day? Let the temperature in the building go up to 80 degrees instead of trying to keep it at 72. Those really help, and we call that when it's integrated together, a virtual power plant. So these loads can be reduced, and these energy sources, solar and storage, can be dispatched to support the grid with more power 
and that really makes a difference. Now, we're not just talking about power. They can be used to support the voltage at the edge of the grid. They can be used to improve the frequency that the grid is operating at. They can adjust the power factor. So there's a lot of things that can happen. And I think that these systems are going to gain a lot more traction in the market as the initial pilot programs dem demonstrate that these VPPs, or virtual power plants, have a lot of value in reducing peak utility energy costs. And that's the real key. What happens from a utility standpoint, even the local utilities like Silicon Valley Clean Energy or Peninsula Clean Energy, those are community choice aggregation companies, they may buy electricity from solar farms for five cents a kilowatt hour or less, really cheap. But once in a while, maybe five or 10 times a year, they have to pay a dollar a kilowatt hour, maybe 80 cents, whatever, for an hour because there's a tremendous load on the grid. And when that happens, everybody's bills get clobbered. So if for those 10 times a year, I'm just throwing that number out 10 times, but if just 10 times a year, these um, utilities can tap into existing assets, then they can compensate customers for that, and they don't have to pay, oh, you know, a dollar a kilowatt hour for electricity. They might just pay the customer 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Everybody wins. And also note that it's not just buying power, but these uh, virtual power plants can reduce the load on the grid. They can just say to a thousand customers in an area where power just suddenly got expensive for an hour, they say, hey, turn off your battery chargers for an hour. That works out really well. So these VPPs are going to have the most immediate impact among what, what are called energy retailers, community choice aggregation utilities, CCAs like Silicon Valley Clean Energy, San Jose's got a new one, Peninsula Clean Energy, San Francisco has one, and the municipal utilities. Because these utilities are, are basically, they're just trying to buy power. The standard utilities, investor-owned utilities that own their power plants, they don't really like these VPPs as much because they'd rather put the power plants in themselves. They'd rather own those generating and transmission assets and distribution assets, and then they rate-base those assets. So we have a situation where it's kind of fragmented and there's a cheaper way to do this with a VPP, once again, we have a utility business model that's thwarting that to a certain degree. Okay, prediction number nine. Maintenance of existing systems, including things like cleaning solar panels, replacing inverters, updating archaic monitoring systems, and replacing broken panels will be an increasing part of an established contractor's business. Now, just kind of looking at these things, you know, the solar panels, it's just a piece of glass with silicon on the back and aluminum around the edges. Those things last for 25 years. They're, they're super reliable. I mean, I kind of look back over the last almost 20 years doing installations, and the only thing that's really ever happened once in a while is a tree branch falls on something. The, the reputable manufacturers that are out there, the ones that are in Bloomberg top 10 list, their stuff's really reliable. It just works. So don't worry about the reliability of the solar panels. Don't get too concerned about these things called degradation rates and things like that. Everybody's kind of in the same range. But what does change is the inverters. So the inverters typically are good for 10 or 15 years, and earlier inverters were less. You can get an extended warranty, but you know, 10, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, they're all guaranteed for 10 or 12. They might last 15 or 20. The biggest issue are things like wiring and communication systems. Now, what's wrong with the wiring? Good contractors will do the wiring right the first time. Don't worry about it. But what happens sometimes is rodents, pests, squirrels, rats, pigeons, they might kind of gnaw on the wires. Or a contractor that's not that experienced or is in a hurry, so watch out for the contractors that are trying to bang out a lot of jobs really fast, they may not attach the wires properly to the modules or the racking. Those dangling wires can cause a problem. And I mentioned communications, biggest pain in the neck. Monitoring systems are by far and away the most common cause of customer service issues, whether it's Wi-Fi, 
Wi-Fi, Ethernet monitoring, you know, some kind of proprietary gateway that was popular 10 years ago and you can't replace anymore. Those are hassle. So what we're finding is working with an inverter that's got good communications and software and it's got a good way to communicate, typically cellular is our preference, those work the best. And coming back to the importance of maintenance, successful contractors that provide these maintenance services. Right now, you're going to buy a system, find out who's going to maintain that system. Find out who's doing solar cleaning in your neighborhood. Find out who's maintaining the systems that were put in 10 or 20 years ago. Those are the contractors that kind of figured out the business. They're going to be around. All right. Number 10, residential solar prices will bottom out at an average of $2.5 a watt until the permitting, inspection, interconnection, and incentive costs are reduced. Now, even if solar panels were completely free, zero, average solar installation prices would still be over $2 a watt until these soft costs that I mentioned are reduced. Now, there's always extremes. There's high, high price areas. California's a really high price area, high cost of living. Hawaii is expensive. There's places where installations are much cheaper, like Florida and Texas. But the average is going to be kind of steady in your range. And these soft costs are really hard to reduce. Now, to make these soft cost problems worse, the contractors that are installing grid-tied battery storage systems are experiencing permitting, interconnection, incentive delays in excess of a year. And this is a reality that's almost impossible to explain to customers, although recently we've been seeing some improvements there. So what's the solution to this? Well, if you're in the solar industry, please support the efforts made by SIA and the Solar Foundation to reduce these costs because they have something called the Solar Auto automated permit processing app, solar app. And they're working on that. Heck, I started working on this six or seven years ago. I really learned about it a dozen years ago. But we have to kind of attack these costs on a national level. Otherwise, we're just going to be death by a thousand cuts. Okay, as I wrap up with these 2019 predictions, I'm kind of humbled by Yogi Bear's advice. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Nevertheless, I'm confident in two key elements of our industry. Number one, we're doing the right thing for the global environment. And number two, the economics of solar and storage remains superior to any other energy source. And so I remain very optimistic that regardless of the next plunge in the solar coaster or the stock market, our industry is going to continue to thrive over the long term. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinema.energy and listen to the podcast.